0: Welcome to the Sum of It All Take Two podcast. I'm Audrey Mendeville along with my colleague Mark Alcorn from the San Diego County Office of Education. And this season, we're revisiting an entire past season in each episode, sharing what we think now along with new resources, connections, and opportunities. Transcripts to our podcast are always available for you in the episode notes on your favorite platform. This episode, we're revisiting season three. Faster Isn't Smarter, when we read and chatted about the book, Faster Isn't Smarter, by Kathy Seeley. And I'm wondering if maybe we start off today, Mark, just chatting a little bit about this book, because of all the books we've read, this is by far the oldest. Uh, The original publication date was back in 2009, and then the second edition, which you and I were using, was 2015. So why is this the book we keep coming back to?
1: Well, Audrey, you know, this book is just timeless. I mean, 2009 that Mm -hmm. that was a minute ago Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i'm looking at the table of contents right now it's like one one of the messages called good old days technology is a tool and so on and so on like i mean these are all great short messages as we said when we when we recorded the season that are just great for us to think about how we might have conversations with our colleagues and how and it's like the messages are like these little supports right they're Mm -hmm. they're a way for us to to think through some of these uh timeless issues and help us get our thoughts together how we can you know be better supported to be ready to jump into these conversations um and uh i had forgotten a little bit about some of this for season three and and you know uh even you know uh, over a year later audrey it's just more important than ever
0: yeah, I really appreciate that, Mark. I think that that's so important. And I think it fits really with this idea of the take two or rethinking. Because for me, like we're we we are more likely to rethink something or a belief or an understanding when we have kind of conversations around something, right? Where we can point to something else that we've read and that we're thinking about and wondering about rather than when it's a forced intervention or it's a, this is bad, this is good mm-hmm. moment. Or, right. um, you know, Adam Grant talks about the preacher and the politics politician how they never win these kinds of things as you know opposed to like really just being authentically curious and saying like I'm trying to make sense of this what are you wondering about here can I ask you a question and having time to understand each other so I really appreciate um how well this book fits into this idea of continuing to rethink in our take two season
1: oh for sure Audrey so Audrey uh what's something that's been sticking with you around uh this book as we revisit it
0: oh yeah there's so much one I think that we could start with is um In season, uh, the first episode, I think, in season three, we talk about this idea of barriers that we inadvertently add instead of subtract from our students' learning. Um, And it comes from the message number 30 out of the text. And I was re-watching recently the New York Times series that's called um, Who Me Biased, (laughs) which are a series of short videos around thinking about unconscious bias and implicit Mm -hmm. bias and how we kind of navigate those things. And in one of the episodes, they talk about how we can audit for our unconscious or implicit bias. And this made me think of this particular episode, this season, you know, season three, episode one, where we talk about how do we audit our classrooms or professional learning or coaching, whatever kind of your context is, for barriers that we might inadvertently be adding that get in the way of learning. And like none of these are intentional, right? They're things that we just accidentally put in the way of um, then the prevent learning from happening. So I'm super curious how we might audit for that. And you know, Matt Vaudry always posts about this time of year on Twitter and in other social media spaces about how um, he solicits feedback. And I know he started this when he was a TOSA, he's done it as a coach um, and as a teacher now as an administrator, but he gives out this like feedback survey in order to elicit, the information very similar to like the audit might be about like what's working and what's not working. And I, I just so appreciate that we don't have to wait until the end of a grading period or the end of a professional learning series to ask these questions. Uh, it's way more valuable to our current students. If we ask now so that we can address and remove those barriers instead of allowing them to continue. So, um, that's totally been sticking with me, uh, since the season air. I'm curious, Mark though, what about you? what um what do you want to revisit or think about since since that season three?
1: Yeah, well, Audrey, you mentioned professional learning and and that has definitely been on my mind as i re- I look back at season three. And if you remember, we spent a couple of episodes uh, thinking about professional learning because Kathy has some great messages around that topic. And um since since season three, You know, the pandemic really pushed us to think about the barriers that really I think they always existed for our adult learners in professional learning as we work with educators. But I think there was something about the pandemic that made us stop and think about those things. Um, Either we weren't paying attention before or it was kind of like just business as usual, like, that, you know, this is how we do professional learning. We always make it a whole day and we always Mm -hmm. do this and we always do that without stopping and saying, wait. What are the barriers our participants are having with this? Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, that's definitely on my mind because, you know, we, we think about this idea of continuous improvement for um, all educators. Well, that definitely includes us as people who provide professional learning. Our professional learning so, should continue to evolve as we get better and better at addressing the barriers uh, of our participants.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate that. You know, and that idea of applying. of this lens of universal design for learning to professional learning is definitely something we've explored quite a bit since since the season aired and you know a lot of it for me has to do with this idea that comes out of cast and universal design for learning which is about expert learning right like it's about um it's about us learning how we learn and moving into our strengths and thinking about the things that um make learning most interesting and and accessible for each one of us and leveraging those things And so it reminds me both about this podcast, which we've talked about quite a bit, like how this podcast is continuous learning for you and I, but it also reminds me about um, speaking at conferences, which is a little bit of a weird one. This came up again, interestingly enough, just a couple of weeks ago on Twitter and Schwartz was asking about like, how do you all pick what you're going to speak about at a conference, right? And I thought, you know, I just think everyone does things like I do things. That's why I think our natural bias is we think everyone does things the same way. I write conference proposals based on what I want to learn by the time the conference comes out, you know, so I often write these kind of, you know, hey, I'd like to speak about X, Y, and Z because that's the thing I really want to learn about. And, you know, you and I laugh so often because we'll get these proposal acceptances back and they'll tell you what you're speaking on and we're like wow, that would be amazing if someone talked about that. And then we realized that's our own proposal. And we're like, oh man, now I got to learn it. You know, I got to learn this. I got to figure this out. Um, so, but again, I'm saying that all because like, I think that's another another way that we build in our essentially accountability for ourselves to continue to learn and grow. And I think that's a lot of what being an expert learner is about and what you're talking about with any continuous improvement model is that like, we have to position ourselves in a space where we say, I'm going to learn. And there's going to be something at some point in time that reminds me that I made that commitment to learn, right? Whether it's our podcast coming up that we're going to record the next episode on, whether it's the conference that comes up that we put in an adventurous proposal, you know, to write, um, to speak at. So I'm thinking about those two things and really embracing the continuous improvement part of uh, our journey as educators.
1: Yeah, Audrey, I love the conference example because, yeah, it when we get those back in the email acceptance, you know, I'm like, wow, well, I'd love to attend this session. And then right? I realized that I'm leading it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> co-leading exactly. it. So, um, but, you know, I think it's that connects to something else that I, that I want to share, Audrey, which is this whole idea back to continuous improvement. I think part of what happens in the conference proposal land is you put in this proposal a year ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And. We're not staying in the same place. We're trying to keep getting smarter about things. So sometimes our 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 ideas of what we might present actually change and evolve because we're continuously improved. Which makes me think about like uh, in the classroom work, right? Like if I went back to the classroom five years later than when I was teaching, would my instruction and support for students look exactly the same? Mm-hmm. And so I think I think. One of the things in education that I think we've we've often grappled with, and this has implications for professional learning, is this idea of when does tried and true like I'm doing this because it's tried and true. It's part of my wheelhouse. It's it's one of my best things I do with my students. How do how do we deal with when that bumps up against the mindset of continuous improvement? Mm. You've got this tried and true stuff on one side and continuous improvement on the other side. Something's got to give on one of those, right? So um, yeah. I think it's really important for us to just call that out, right? Yeah.
0: And you know, there's something exhausting about continuous improvement too. So like the idea that I'm always changing and always growing just feels a little bit overwhelming at times, true. right? So like true. I can I can see how oftentimes we we roll back into tried and true. Um, but where I like that how you describe that. Where Where do they bump up against each other? You know, I was working recently with some teachers, and when I was probing around like, why are we doing this learning now? Their why was that they looked back seven years in the past and realized Mm -hmm. they were doing the same thing today that they were doing seven years ago. Like they like not lesson by lesson, but like instruction by and large looked the same. And one of the teachers stood up and said like, in seven years from now, it cannot look like it looks now. Our world just is changing more rapidly than that. And I thought that was just such an honest, reflection of uh, this need for change, like acknowledging, like, there are things that are happening around us that should be pushing on what happens in our classroom, not staying the same, that this idea of, I need to keep learning, I need to keep growing, um, how else might I think of doing this, how else might I grow, Um, was a great way to model kind of that, that growth mindset that we've been talking about.
1: That's such a cool story, Audrey. I just... I could just picture the teacher standing up and saying, we can't do this seven years from now. Wow, that is so powerful.
0: Yeah. So I'm super curious. um, What have you been rethinking or thinking more about maybe um, kind of tweaking or or retaking a second look at since our our season aired?
1: Well, Audrey, I went back through, you know, it's so cool to have transcripts because who wants to listen to my voice, like through all those episodes (laughs) all over again. Uh, So I'm very thankful for transcripts. And so I was going through the transcripts and uh, in Kathy's message 34, um, it it gets into this whole idea of sort of reminding me around this language we have uh, currently around perceived learning gaps, right? Um, And in that, discussion we were talking about that message, you came up, I went back and grabbed some language from that you used, Audrey, back in that Mm -hmm. episode. And here's what you said. You said, there's a difference between a student who has never had an experience with a mathematic topic or skill. So that's one example. A different example is has a fragile and short-lived hold on the same knowledge based on superficial learning. A third example is with significant misconceptions and understandings about that knowledge. And then still another situation has forgotten something for now and simply needs a refresher. Um, I just, as we, we hear all this work around remediation right now in our current time, like I just thought your four ways of framing that there's just not one size fits all with any of this the way we think about it. Um, and we went a little further on to talk about in that episode of when are our kids gonna get to do real math? And that just hit me hard again, like in this whirlwind, of, quote unquote, catch students up, we miss the nuance of what part of instruction is broken for them. And we might give them something that of course they don't even need, which further, uh, you know, causes them to disengage from the learning. And we rush them through these experiences that are not compelling to the students, To them as students or meaningful for them learning and then with all that then we still they miss the math from the real world which is the stuff that's just the stuff that is compelling and builds curiosity
0: yeah you know mark that really resonates with me i i saw in my notes about this comment i that I think we wrestled with about when do our students get to do the good stuff. And I think we had that, that quote was from Kathy out of her text and, and, you know, the math of the real world, the good stuff. And, you know, the more I think about that now, the more I realize that that definition for me probably keeps changing um, as I learn more. So like, I think it used to be the stuff that I really liked in math class, you know, the Uh, things that I found were interesting or intriguing. Um, I recently heard a teacher talk about how they just, they love solving trig identities. There's something so amazing at the end when Mm -hmm. they get the right answer, you know, or they they confirm that the identity is true. And, you know, I remember at one point really loving that too, but I wouldn't say that that's the thing now that I think is of the good stuff, you know? And like, I'm not sure our students think that's always the good stuff. And so how do we kind of continue to explore what that is? um, And also think about whether or not the math feels uh, current and relevant and interesting versus someone else's math that's already been discovered. You know, like, are we? I, I have a whole bunch there to unpack, and we'll, we'll save it for a different episode. But I think a lot of times we perpetuate that it's someone else's math that our mm-hmm. students are coming into the door to understand something someone else has already figured out. And when do we allow our students to figure out something that nobody else has figured out? Where do we let them play in the land of their own mathematics, right? And and really thinking about it that way. So more there for another episode, I'm sure.
1: Oh yeah, for sure, Audrey. You know, there is another thing that is <clears throat> that is uh, still in my mind and I'd like to revisit from that season. And it's this whole idea of figuring out a student that previous teachers have not figured out yet how to reach a particular student. And we had a short discussion around that uh, in season one. And, you know, it really, has it, it something that I want to revisit because recently my colleague and I, um, we've been working on a particular project where we're working with a group of teachers and we want them to select some students to um, keep in mind as they do their planning of their tasks. And it's kind of interesting because, I don't know about you, Audrey, but there's, whenever that's been something that's been done in the past in work I've been in as a classroom teacher, there's usually some kind of a phrase like target students or some other phrase like that that sort of has a lot of implications around them being, quote unquote, low students, um, which is a phrase that um, is not a phrase I would use and I'm putting in quotes. And so um, I think that it's, it's really helpful to think about what language we might use around that. And my colleague and I landed on kids that we curious about, students were curious about. So these are students that we want to encourage teachers to figure out their variability. Um, And so um, I think it's really cool that we we had that discussion back in um, episode one of season three, because it's something that I'm definitely still thinking about, because it's it's even not convenient to use in our sentences like students. We are curious about it. It, We want to slip back to something like target students because it's easier to say. but I think really having that stance of curiosity around our students, it really frames it in a positive stance versus that that stance of like, I need to rescue this broken student. So I think that um, students we are curious about is something that I, I think that is really in the spirit of what we were talking about back in episode one.
0: Yeah, I, I really like that retake on that, Mark. And I appreciate how often you remind us of the power of language. And I think it should be difficult for us to describe students with a word like hmm. it should be something that we have to hesitate and try to rework because our students are so much more than any quick label that we could apply to them they just really are and so they're so much more deserving of the word targeted or low or high or fast or right. I mean they're so much more complex than that and so when we have to struggle through the language of how might we describe this student succinctly I think that's a good space to be in that shows that we're authentically trying to um, get at the, the heart and the beauty of, of the individual students that we're trying to somehow describe. So um, I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, um, so you know, Audrey, as we're thinking about things that have come out of this season, you know, things that we can, you know, take forward and um, move forward with, you know, I, I'd like to go back if we could to Message 37 because it has <laughs> the best title. It just says, Boring exclamation mark. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I just think that's just awesome, right? Not awesome in a, a good way, <laughs> but <laughs> but awesome in an attention-getting way. Kathy yes. uh, really uh, picked a great title there. Um, so I, you know, I've been really thinking a lot about this lately, especially you know in this hard road of teaching in schools for the last couple of years. We've got this situation where teachers are feeling beat down from the pandemic. And in some cases, they are not even getting support from the community around them. Um, and so all this is going on. And, and it's like good to think about, like, how do we support teachers with practical and authentic ways to cultivate student interest so it's not boring <laughs> with the exclamation mark? Right. So, um, you know, Audrey, you and I over the last 14 months have had a lot of discussions about finding ways to leverage student strengths in mathematics and you know, increase interest. Uh, so, um, you know, I'm just just thinking a lot about that uh, as we as we reflect on
0: on this, right? Yeah, you know, and I think that's one of the reasons that you and I got so into thinking about how we play in math and invite students' brilliance to shine. I mean, we spent a lot of effort over the last you know twelve months really thinking how do we design experiences where students. Um, are given space to, to just really enjoy and um, showcase their knowledge instead of perhaps what you're describing, you know, here where we accidentally, unintentionally, or maybe on purpose, uh, give students math that is uninteresting or, or worse.
1: Yeah, you know, it reminds me of a phrase that I think you and I came up with a few months ago, which is play is the intervention. Mm-hmm. Like we're thinking about what is the intervention in this in this time of rebooting education? Play for math is the intervention, and you know in episode two we talked about how Kathy mentions that creativity is hard to test. So our play math again comes to mind, or a willingness like to resist this knee jerk reaction to recent test scores, um, and and really that play is even it's an equity issue. We have to have an equity stance of like who gets to play and are we making sure that all students are engaged in play and curiosity around things that have to do with mathematics. Um, I'll be honest with you, Audrey, I've been reflected back on my own classroom of how I believe I use play too much as a reward. Um, and by doing that, I realized I was limiting the development of creativity in my students by making it a gatekeeper rather than something that is going to be good for all. So I think these are just great things to think about in this era of thinking about what will really reboot education for our students.
0: Yeah, that is a huge, huge point for me, Mark. um, This idea of who gets to play, because I think it can potentially be an equity tool, but it can also perpetuate and even expand opportunity gaps when, we allow certain students who are fast or who have finished what we've asked them to do or who play the game of school well to get to experience the joy and the beauty of math. Um, And we withhold that from students um, and only give that to students who fit a very narrow definition of what it means to be successful in math. We inadvertently use that tool to perpetuate harm instead of offer an opportunity for everyone to to see the beauty and experience that together. So that's a huge point um, about whether or not play is a reward or play is for all. And I think I appreciate you bringing that up in, in this episode. I'm curious as we're closing out this, uh, this particular episode, what are your final thoughts? What's sticking with you from this book or from, from listening back to our season three?
1: Yeah, so Audrey, I think the thing I'll say as, as my wrap up is there was a conversation we were having that I, I went back and revisited And um, I'm just going to read you kind of like the statement that was said then. And I just really, I'm holding it really um, out in front of me as we're looking at the time we're in. And here's how it goes. Wouldn't it be amazing to consider selecting a student that may not be currently experiencing success and visualize them as very successful in, in their future? How would that change our current expectations of that student? So I just, uh, I had forgotten about that um, part of our episodes in season three, and I just even picture just sitting in that child's chair, that student's chair, and just thinking about them and visualizing them as the successful person as they grow up. And I just wonder how much, if we do that type of work, how much that could change how we view the student now, and how we can support them now. So that's what I'm walking away with, Audrey.
0: I love that, Mark. You? you know, now that you've said that, I'm I'm going to say, like, if we were to tweak that and talk about it as teachers, for all of us out there who are listening in as coaches, ah. that might be an interesting space, too. Like, wouldn't it be amazing to consider any teacher who's not currently experiencing success, success right now and visualizing them as successful in the future? Like, how would that... like I just literally changed those words how would that change our expectations of them how would that change how we treat them and how we how we offer learning experiences um, and design learning experiences for them so whether you're in the classroom or um you're working with teachers as a coach or a leader like there's space for us to maybe change the way we we view some of our folks who are not experiencing success, success right now in order to change the way that we treat them and um and offer opportunities to them. So thanks for that, Mark. That's, that's going to stick with me.
1: Sure. Thanks, Audrey. I love that tweet. <laughs> thanks for joining us for this episode. In our next episode, we will chat about season four, short reads. Until then, send us a tweet with the hashtag #SumMathChat. That's hashtag S-U-M-M-A-T-H-C-H-A-T with your questions and thoughts. We'll keep the conversation going there. Until then, remember, faster isn't smarter.